then he said, oh, and there's something else. And I said, what? And he said, she claims that she was raped. So I was in bits. Really? I remember going out into the garden alone and wandering about, and I wanted to cry, but couldn't. You know, I was just crucified inside, because that, for me, was the worst scenario that I could hear. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Honor. She called me from outside of Edinburgh, Scotland. Honor described a childhood in isolation so much so that it impacted her health when she started school. It took her many years to track down her real story, and at one point, she thought that one of her worst fears was true. When she found her birth mother, they only had a passing anonymous introduction to one another, and when they met again years later, the woman was unable to recognize who Honor was. When Honor tracked down her birth father, his actions indicated he was the right guy even if he didn't explicitly say so. This is Honor's journey. Honor was born in Good Shepherd Mother and Baby Home in Bishopton, near Glasgow, Scotland. Her mother and father adopted her as slightly older parents, 44 and 42 respectively. Honor says she was adopted officially at four years old, and she remembers that time of their lives because her parents seemed agitated, which she still remembers clearly. They told her she was adopted, but she didn't know what it meant. She just knew it was a word she should definitely remember. And occasionally after that, I would ask the question, why did you choose me? And I think it was probably because I liked the answer, which is because you were the one who smiled. And then I sensed this was all preschool and pre-five-year-old. I then became very aware how uncomfortable my mother became if I asked the question, she didn't like it. And what would she do? So, How could you tell? She, she, she would look uncomfortable and would just say, oh, because you were the one that smiled and carry on doing something else. She never sort of sat down or sat me on her knee and talked about it nicely. It was like, I've answered now, shut up. It was definitely a discomfort situation, which I picked up on. So I stopped asking the question. Honor said she didn't ask her father about adoption either. She said adoption was never mentioned again in the family, except for one time when her father was near the end of his life. The only time that it came to the fore was when my father was terminally ill and the consultant was asking him questions. And one of the questions was how many children did he have? And he said, none. Wow. And I was sitting there beside him. And the consultants had appeared over his glasses at me. And I squirmed in the seat. You know, I mean, it was ridiculous, really. And he asked my dad the question again. And he said, none. So oh. that was the impact. The lifelong impact of infertility came bubbling to the surface. And what did you feel inside yeah. when he basically denied you as his daughter. 
very uncomfortable, but I forgave him because the poor man was dying, literally. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't himself. His mind had sort of, you know, I'd, I'd, I don't know what he would have said if he had been better than he was. You know, even a couple of months prior to that, I'm not sure whether he would have said, yes, I have one adopted daughter or something of that nature. But he just said, no, none, no children. Honor said she was around 40 when her father denied her existence as his daughter. But she forgives him because he had cancer that had deeply impacted him. Going back to her childhood, Honor said she was sent to a convent school at the age of four years old. She was younger than her peer group because of her February birthday. She says those preschool years were very lonely, so she learned to entertain herself. Even though her mother was a stay-at-home mom, she was a homebody, always talking on the phone sewing, but not engaged in the activities that enrich a kid's life. She didn't take her to the park to play, and she didn't read honor stories either. Her father did that at bedtime. So he introduced me to the world of books, and he was an avid reader himself. And it was he who would take me out, say, Saturday morning, she would meet a friend for coffee, and he would take me to look at the steam trains at Waverley Station. So we'd go and look at the trains and wander around Princess Street Gardens while she had coffee, and then we'd meet up again and come home. At eight years old, Honor was introduced to riding lessons, and she fell in love with the fantasy of owning a pony one day. As we talked, I realized she was so locked away from the world, she probably would have latched on to whatever activity her parents introduced her to, and Honor agreed. She said she spent her first year of school at home in bed sick. That sequestration from the world prevented her from developing immunities, so she caught everything like measles, mumps, and whatever was lingering about. She had to repeat that year, which was okay because she went to school with a nicer group of girls, and she was older than the other students, not younger, which could have been tough. Still, Honor's parents put a lot of pressure on her to be a bright star academically. And while she was no dummy, she was an average student. I, I, I sort of grew up feeling that I was never pretty enough or clever enough. Mm. I wasn't the child that they hoped that, that they would produce between them. And yet they would have denied that. Had they been confronted with that, they would have denied that and said I was everything. But I wasn't. Yeah, I, I don't believe I was. Um, so then teenage years were the usual angst and things, but I started self-harming, which I didn't realize I was self-harming until I was in adulthood. But at the age of six, I was in the classroom at school and a blade fell out of a pencil sharpener and I cut my finger. <laughs> accidentally, and then it was all bandaged up, and there was, you know, the fuss and everything. But that was a beginning, so I used to get my dad's razors then, and I would cut myself on purpose, and I did that for a lot of years. And then when my mother was noticing and said, don't do that, it's bad for you, I would do it where she wouldn't see it necessarily as I got older. Around 14 years old, Honor stopped self-harming, but she started smoking. 
she admits smoking was a substitute for the overt physical self-harming. And it was that sort of feeling of not being good enough. I mean, they, they would have claimed they loved me, but she would be very uh, kind of, if we were out in a social situation and we came home, she would say to me, I, I just wanted to push you and say, speak, because I was very quiet. I, I didn't want to say anything in case it sounded stupid, so mm. I just kept quiet. You know, and then at another time she would be saying how wonderful and marvelous I was because I'd made custard or something stupid. You know, so it was this mixed message thing was going on all the time. Honors read a lot about her behavior in those days. She learned that inflicting harm on yourself is a release of some kind that could be related to anger, pain, or that you're not loved. Honors' first school closed, so she was transferred to another, dingier, substandard educational school that she abhorred. She was trying to figure out what she should study to build her professional foundation, and her parents tried to steer her toward nursing or teaching. But Honor wanted to be a journalist. She loved to write, and it's a skill, she says, has helped her in adulthood to deal with everything. I asked Honor about how her adoption was playing out in her mind in terms of being a teenager and starting to notice differences between herself and her family. She said she definitely noticed differences between herself and her parents and cousins, but it was an interesting experience while traveling internationally that made her actually feel a connection for the first time. When I was 13 or 14, they took me to Ireland for the first time. And my mother said before we went, oh, it's somewhere you'll either love it or you'll hate it. Well, I loved it straight away. And I had a scenario playing out in my head that my parents, my natural parents, had been a young Irish couple uh, in love. I was conceived. They couldn't marry for whatever reason, and I was born. Mm. And then I had to be adopted. So I had the whole thing centered in Ireland long before I knew of my Irish connection. I, I felt a strong, strong connection. It was like a coming home, almost. And you didn't know that was her descent? Not at that time, I didn't know. Wow. So when I, when I did find that out, it was no surprise. It was a confirmation of something I knew. So yes, I definitely was aware of the differences. And I had this romantic scenario. And I used to say to myself, I would hate to discover that I had been the result of rape. You know, how would you deal with that? Imagine finding that out. Yeah, versus the romanticized story you created, yeah. Honor got married at 23 years old and had children in her mid-20s. Her first son had red hair, but she and her husband both have dark hair. Of course, that was a trigger for her to wonder about her biological contribution to their son's lives. So the desire to search burned within her. Her parents were still alive at the time, so she felt it was disloyal to search for her birth parents just yet. Honor had her abbreviated birth certificate, which her parents had unceremoniously handed to her without discussion when she told them she was applying for a passport. She carried her birth certificate around for weeks, intending to act on her desire to search, but she couldn't bring herself to walk in the door of the records department. Finally, her husband said he would take their sons for the day while she went to Register House in Edinburgh. With her abbreviated birth certificate in hand, an older gentleman escorted her to a private room to wait 
while he collected her adoption records. So he came back with a large brown envelope sealed with a wax seal, and I had to sign on the front of the envelope giving my permission to break the seal. So we broke the seal, and inside it was my original birth certificate, my baptismal certificate, a medical certificate, and the name of the adoption society who had handled the adoption. Uh, and he gave me copies away of each one of those things. So I remember staring at the birth certificate, and he was very good, very empathetic or whatever. He, he let me digest each thing as he handed it to me, you know, the baptism and the birth certificate. And there was this name staring at me, and it was actually Honora. Oh. Um, it was staring at me uh, from the page, and you're thinking, gosh, that's me, you know. <laughs> right. And yet it's not me. So it was that, that was a strange moment. Okay, this is probably a good time to tell you that Honor is not the name my guest was raised with. Since she's a writer, she's adopted her birth name back, and she uses it as her pen name. Honor admits she was really fortunate to have the easy access to her records that she did. Apparently in the UK and Scotland, the legislation was changed in the 1970s to allow open access to personal records. Of course, seeing her identifiable information inspired Honor to keep investigating, but the Edinburgh Catholic Society, through which she was adopted, no longer existed. A research dead end. A few years later, Honor and her husband were on holiday listening to the radio when an advertisement for Birthlink spoke about connecting adoptees with birth families, providing information for their registry. A few weeks later, she had an appointment with one of their social workers who found Honor's records at the since renamed and relocated adoption agency. The social worker gave her a piece of paper with information about Honor's story. According to this piece of paper, that my mother had come over from Ireland to St. Gerard's at Bishopton to have me because she had been seeing my father for a period of nine months. They had planned to get married when he left the army or something, but then they had quarreled and parted before she knew of her pregnancy. And she was, you know, it was all the tug the heartstring stuff. She was all alone in the world. She had lost a sister and her mother the previous year um, and so she had had me and then made the decision to have me adopted and there was two letters on file written by her to the social worker saying how much she missed her baby and it was a hard decision and but she'd done it for the best and blah, blah. so there was all of that so they gave me the letters to keep and the printout so that buoyed me up no end because it confirmed the whole Irish thing for me. Mm -hmm. And I had these letters written by her stating that she missed her baby and all of that. Yeah. So then, At that time, that must have been, when you first read that stuff, that must have been really comforting because it almost sounds too like at that time you were... Uh, romanticized fantasy of what had transpired was somewhat confirmed too, right? Yes. Honor took time to soak in what she had learned about herself. And of course, life pressed on. 
She discovered that St. Andrew's Adoption Society had relocated to her old convent school, the one she hated. There was a several-week waiting list for an appointment. Maybe six, eight weeks later, I was pacing up and down outside this horrible school, and it, it used to, it had a high wall all around it, and then one of these great big wooden, heavy wooden doors with a little door in the, the middle of it. So oh, I had to yeah. step into the yard and through this door, and that was a very kind of moment. <laughs> And then into the office, and the girl on the desk had been a couple of years below me at school, and I'm thinking, oh God, I hope she doesn't recognize me. The male social worker gave her most of the same information she already had, except he also had her birth father's name, Martin. He gave her a sheet with search tips like checking marriage registries, death registries, and noting the names of witnesses on either. She chipped away at her search, meeting dead ends periodically, like the gruff older gentleman who told her it wasn't a good idea to go searching. In the mid-1980s, she got a clue on a marriage registry out of Dublin for a woman named Sarah, born only one day before the birth date Honor had for her birth mother. Honor tried to verify a marriage for Sarah, but she couldn't find it because she had been married in Glasgow. She noted the name of the witnesses, got their phone numbers from the directory, and got through to a nice Irish woman who gave Honor an address and phone number for Sarah. Honor took the information back to her social worker, who drafted a letter to Sarah on plain paper with a nondescript return address, just in case someone else in the household intercepted the correspondence. He added his contact phone number and allowed Honor to add her phone number too. Within days, she had apparently contacted the social worker and told him that she had no knowledge of anybody by that name. Hmm. So that was a bit of a moment, because I couldn't see where else to go. You know, that she was sort of the obvious one. Two weeks later, Honor had been out grocery shopping, and when she got home, her boys were in bed. When everything was put away and they were settled in for the evening, her husband sat her down and said he had something to tell her. And I could see, you know, this was something that mattered. <laughs> yeah. So I said, well, you know, what? And he said, oh, the woman you wrote to phoned. Wow. And I said, what? And she said, he said, oh, she is your mother. She said that her conscience has been bothering her and she's your mother. Wow. And I said, all right, I'll go and phone her. And he said, no, 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 you can't. She doesn't want any contact. Oh. And if you phone, you'll cause trouble for her. What did, what did you think I about that? See, well, I was upset enough with that. But then he said, oh, and there's something else. And I said, what? And he said, she claims that she was raped. So I was in bits. Really? I remember going out into the garden alone and wandering about. And I wanted to cry, but couldn't. You know, I was just crucified inside. Because that, for me, was the worst scenario that I could hear. A while after that, I would be waking up in the night crying. So it was a combination of the rejection, the second rejection, mm. and this information that she claimed she had been raped. But something was bugging Honor. She couldn't reconcile the fact that her record said that Sarah had been in a relationship for months with a man she intended to marry and had gotten pregnant by with the more recent claim of a violent act. 
Honor decided to seek counseling for months, which helped a lot. She decided her birth mother wasn't getting off that easily, so she reached out, disguising her letter as needing medical information. She wrote back and answered the questions. Uh, and then at the end of it, she said she had no other choice. It was all she could do. And she said a memorari every day for me. So that was the first letter. So then on, on time went. And I thought, no, I want to know more. I need more than this. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the whole rape thing was very much to the fore. I wanted to, to get... So I connected with her parish priest. Honor spoke with the priest off and on for nearly 18 months, chatting about everything from her birth mother to politics and more. He was astonished at the story Honor was telling about Sarah, whom he calls Sadie. But he accepted what she said, and he shared what he knew about her. Honor was nearby on holiday, so they agreed to meet. We met, and he took me to lunch uh, Somewhere he took me on a little tour of the district to show me the block and all of that, and then we went to lunch, and then we got back in the car and he said, "Had I ever seen her?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Oh, I think we should try and arrange for you to see her. We'll try and we'll see what we can do. We'll go past the house," he said. So this is rural Ireland, very rural Ireland, and she was on a farm, so the road was very narrow, single track road. So we went down past the farm and he said, oh, good, there's cars there. Oh, boy. So we went down to the bottom of the road where there was a little kind of shop of some kind. And there were three old men sort of standing, chatting, one with a bicycle. And, and they all waved, you know, seeing the parish priest. So then we swung around and came up a bumpy track to come back down past the house. And still, oh, no, we're not in luck yet. You know, she's not coming out. And then back down, and they waved again. So by about the eighth time, um, he said, oh, we'll just go one more time down. And I said, but you've got to live here. <laughs> <laughs> because these men were waving every time, thinking, what the fuck is he playing at? You know, he's yeah. going round again. So then the final time, I said, we'll give up after this one. There was a tractor coming over the brow of the hill, and he said, I knew we'd have our moment if we were patient. She was walking behind the tractor carrying a picnic basket. Mm. And they were on haymaking. And he said, there she is. So I quickly got a pair of sunglasses out of the handbag. <laughs> and I had a headscarf on. I've been trying to look. So, of course, she saw him and she was all smiles and waves in the car. And I'm sort of casually waving and trying to have a good old look mm -hmm. at her. So that was my first glimpse of her. Wow. What was that and like, she just to looked, see her coming? Well, to see her coming, I thought, God, oh, God, oh, God, you know, you're, you're all over Twitter. And yeah. I thought, that's her, that's her. And, you know, there's the moment, and then you want the moment back, and to freeze the moment so you can have a proper look. But you also have that discontent because it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be spying on someone like that. You should have a proper connection. Yeah, You that's know, right. be able to say hello properly. And that was it. They drove away without an introduction. I asked if Honor saw any of herself in the woman, but 
It was such a fleeting moment, and it was so intense in her mind already, she wasn't able to detect pieces of herself at all. But the priest saw the resemblance. When he and Honor first met, he recognized her from far away because, in his opinion, Honor looked the way her mother used to look. At the encouragement of a very nice woman Honor met and connected deeply with while researching her birth father, she wrote Sarah another letter, asking whether Sarah had been raped. Honor's new friend sensed that the topic had been bothering her, but she also said, whatever Sarah's answer is, she had to accept it. So she wrote back to me at that point to that letter, saying that, yes, she had been raped twice. Now, in my head, you don't go back for more. Mm -hmm. You know, that didn't make sense to me. So I forwarded her reply to Breda. This lady was called Breda. And she wrote back and she said, oh, she, she says, no way was she raped. She's doing what a lot of Irish women do and trying to make herself, her conscience clear to make out like she's the good girl. She never did anything wrong type thing because the nuns would call them the devil himself and us, the children born to these girls, were the, the devil spawned. Society had a major issue with children born out of wedlock, just like here in the United States in those days. In the middle of all this, Honor was also looking for her birth father, Martin. In the first letter, she asked Sarah for his surname, and she gave it to her. Honor had been to the register house in Dublin, where she found there had been six Martins with his last name born in a three-year span. Her next stop was the Irish Military Records Department on base, where an older, gentlemanly sergeant with a gravelly voice oversaw one of his young corporals in the search process. And the same corporal kept moving the screen really quickly up and down, you know, zoom, 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 and he kept saying, I know, you know, people wouldn't necessarily be be known by the name they were given at birth. He said, you know, a Martin could be a Michael or a Mick or a... Or, you know, a totally different name altogether. So it's a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack, he said. (laughs) It turned out the sergeant had his own agenda. He told the story of his daughter, whom he had become the stepfather of when her own father left. They had never told their daughter that the sergeant wasn't her real father, and they never planned to do so. Honor was convinced the sergeant had been protecting Martin. She decided to try back a year later, and fortunately, the sergeant had retired, so she got a new point of contact who delivered a seemingly complete file on Martin. He was 26 years in the Army, and it transpired from this that he was actually married at the time of the relationship with my mother and already had two daughters who lived down country. They were in the Midlands of Ireland, and he was up in Dublin at the barracks. And I'd had an affair with Sadie. Honor imagined her birth mother revealing her pregnancy and Martin responding that he was married with two children. She would have been in quite a bind. Thus, Honor's adoption. Honor recalled that a nun who was also a social worker had suggested she contact a maternal half-brother. She said sometimes siblings have a secret relationship. Honor decided to tell the parish priest that she was interested in contacting her brother. And he said, oh, I've been hoping you would say that, was his response. Hmm. He said, yes, we could contact Martin. Now, no woman who is raped calls her only son after a 
the same name as a man who's raped her, does she? No, that's right. My, my brother is Martin. My father is Martin. Wow. So, yeah, exactly. So you don't do that. Right. I mean, any other name on the planet would do. Yeah. But you wouldn't use the same name. Honor is 15 years older than her brother Martin, and he was 28 at the time. He was living at home with their mother. So the priest found his address at work, and the social worker wrote the open letter with a note from Honor and sent it there. Her brother contacted Honor immediately, admitting he was having trouble wrapping his brain around her news. Honor's son was traveling to Ireland for rugby, so she told Martin she would be in town, and if he was interested, they could meet up, but no pressure. He agreed to meet. He picked her up in his car and drove them to a bar for a drink. And we were both looking sideways at each other, you know, but trying, pretending not to. <laughs> <laughs> so he would be looking at me and I was looking at him. Mm -hmm. And I thought we had a very good meeting. It was very amicable and he was very charming and all of that. But then as he was dropping me back at the bed and breakfast where I was staying, his phone went. He looked at the screen and he said, oh, it's her. And I, all I said was, oh dear, if only she knew. And then he spoke to her and said he'd been delayed. She was obviously looking to see why he wasn't home. Martin spent a little more time with Honor that day, then drove her back to her bed and breakfast. Over time, they stayed in touch, but it was always Honor initiating contact with him. Martin said he was just hopeless at staying in touch with people, but Honor's feeling was, if you actually want to be in contact with someone, you make the effort. She didn't want to be a pest, so she stopped calling him. Honor didn't see any similarities between herself and her brother, and she told me she liked him at first, but she's not that fond of him anymore. She also had two paternal half-sisters whom she's never made contact with. So, of course, I asked if Honor was ever able to track down her biological father, Martin. In 2004, she tried the local parish priest connection again, but this guy didn't want any part of her adventure. Honor tried the local general practitioner, the community doctor, who knew Martin. He told her to leave the task with him, and he'd speak with Martin. After several months, she heard nothing, and she thought that was that. True to his word, he popped up, and he said, Oh, I spoke to your man yesterday. Uh, he's coming to my house on Friday afternoon. He said, I'll phone you as soon as he's been. Hmm. So himself, as he would be called, turned up at the doctor's house. Now, the very fact that he turned up, having been given some information what it was about by the doctor, is a confirmation of sorts. Yeah, it is. So he, he turned up, yeah, having detoured by the pub. So he came in reeking of booze, I think. Oh, he was all shiny and suited. You know, he put on his best suit. And, you know, to go to the doctor's house, he had the suits and the hair was all done and what have you. And apparently he sat and he listened as the doctor told him about me, the daughter, and my children and where I lived and what I did and all of that. And he listened and he asked questions. And then after about 40 minutes, apparently abruptly ended the conversation saying, it's a long time ago, it's hard to remember and walked. Really? And I said to the doctor, do you think 
it is him. And he said, oh, you have your man all right, was his comment. Because the fact so that he even sat denial. there and, sh- one, that he showed up, as you said, two, that he exactly. asked inquisitive exactly. questions, you know. Yes. And yeah. then three, the abruptness of the ending suggests an yeah. emotional attachment and yeah. a recollection to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. No, he was in denial. He didn't want me popping up and wrecking what he had left of his life. <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah, so did you ever make a connection to him? Did you get to talk to him? Did you get to meet him? No, no, I didn't. And I wish I wish I had. I would like, really like to have found out which puppy was going to be in on a particular night. And that's a, a regret to mm-hmm. me that I didn't eyeball him. Honor has since seen pictures of Martin, but she's sorry she never came face to face with him. He died four years after that conversation with the general practitioner, only one month after his own wife. Since then, Honor's connected to someone who knew Martin well, and she's learned a bit about him. She knows a bit about her paternal half-sisters, peeking in on them through Facebook. But still, that's hard because she's not truly connected to the lives of her biological family. Honor has also connected with a second cousin, who's also a priest. They've spoken periodically over the years, and he delivers family news when he has some. He phoned the morning my mother died. He actually phoned on the Sunday to say that she wasn't well and he thought it would be her final illness. And then he phoned on the Tuesday to say she had died and the funeral and so on was on the Thursday. It's very quick in Ireland. Uh, So I had to get my flights and everything organized. But he did say in the conversation, he said, now if you get a chance at all, he says, give me a bit of a nudge or a wink and let me know who you are. Oh, really? Yeah. So I went to the funeral, which was memorable for all sorts of reasons. Mm. It was very much the Irish funeral. The coffin was walked down the single road, you know, the single track road to the chapel, uh, which would be a good distance with two sets of coffin bearers interchanging. Mm. I parked in a lane overlooking so I could see the funeral procession going down and her being carried, you know, and, and it was a, the sun was shining. It was all quite poignant. Hmm. And then fell into the snake of cars which had grown behind the coffin and then parked and into the church. And I was upstairs in the chapel. Now, she has four priests on the altar. Four. So that definitely is, you don't, not everybody has four priests on the altar. Yeah. And... The, the one who's a cousin, who's, I knew his face because there's a picture of him in the diocese and, you know, the priests of the diocese. Sure. Uh, so he led the mass and then the my mole, the one who, my mole, who I'd actually reconnected with because he also phoned me to tell me that she had died. I haven't told either of them that I know the other one. <laughs> <laughs> so I know it's all cloak and dagger stuff. But at the beginning of the Mass, he opened the Mass saying, we're gathered here today to remember Sadie. Let us pray for the family and anyone else who may have need to mourn her loss. Oh. Isn't, isn't that nice? He was speaking directly to you in front of everybody. Yeah. Wow. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Wow. Hmm. I just thought that was so nice. Yeah, that was incredibly thoughtful. Yes, 
Do you? Yeah. It sounds though that you really watched the whole ceremony from afar. Did you ever get in and engage with the people whom you knew? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was in. I was in the mass. Uh, yeah. Well, I went. I debated because I don't practice anymore. I'm not a practicing Catholic, and I thought, well, I won't. I go to communion when it came round, and I thought, yeah, damn it, I will for Sadie's sake. So quick act of contrition and. I went down, but it was to one of the other priests, but I, I couldn't help but smile on my way, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I could have gone to him and winked, and you'd have the women in the front row saying, look at her, the bold one, winking at the priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the mass was over, and everybody, it was the burial then in the cemetery just outside, and... People then were lining up to shake my brother's hand. He was standing at the graveside, and I thought, now will I or won't I? And I thought, damn it, I will. So I fell into the queue, and when it came to me, I just took his hand in mine, and I looked at him. Now, this isn't like me. I'm not usually this bold. And I stared at him, and I was thinking, I'm not making this easy for you, so you need to speak. (laughs) So... He stared back, and there was the moment of who is this to the moment of recognition, and then a fleeting glimpse of anger, and all the while no words had passed. And then eventually he said, Thanks for coming. And I was, you know, and I moved on. But the woman behind me, when I was leaving the cemetery, she was giving me some look as if to say, Who are you? So that was, that was. For old Sadie. She said that was for old Sadie. Honor said she was glad she went to the funeral because she had tried to reconnect with her maternal brother when she learned their mother was in poor health. But her brother never replied. I asked how Honor was doing, never having actually met either of her birth parents. She corrected me that she did meet her birth mother once. Not that time on the farm, but in a nursing home when she was much older. Honor had spoken to the mole, the parish priest, who told her to come back for another visit. Sadie had dementia, and she needed dedicated care. The priest wanted to take Honor to meet her mother. Honor said that walking through Ireland with the priest was like walking next to God himself. The man was so revered by the people in town, they barely noticed her by his side. When they reached the nursing home, the priest was ushered inside to Sadie's room without a second thought. He told her mother that he brought his friend for a visit. Now, she would have known I signed letters. Um, He did say afterwards to me, maybe we we should have said Nora. Maybe Nora would have had. But I was anxious that if this was a frail old lady with dementia, to trigger something, I couldn't have lived with myself if I had triggered a moment of you know, acute anxiety in her or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. we kind of kept it. Simple, and I had some photographs with me, and I showed her pictures of the boys. And he's sitting there saying, "Do they look like anyone, Sadie?" And she said, "Oh, I don't know, I don't know." And you know, he said, "Would it be all right for to have a picture taken with you, Sadie?" So she said, "Yes." So she took my hand. She took a hold of my hand and was beaming at the camera because he was holding the camera. Wow. And then while she had my hand, I said, oh, 
wants you to know that she loves you very much. And she looked at me and she said, who's And I said, I am. And she said, oh, that's lovely, with a great big smile. And then he was then sitting, blowing into a handkerchief. <laughs> really? You know. Oh. Yeah. So, so then you, you met her I and she, going, she really didn't re- meet you for her mental incapacity. She, she didn't She yeah. didn't know who it was, yeah. but just the fact that I was saying what I said. And then as we were going, I said, would it be okay to give you a little hug? And she said, of course. So I gave her a little hug, and that's it. Man, that sounds so, heavy. Mm-hmm. So that, yes. But that helped. It helped, even if it was through the back door and she didn't really know who I was. I, I, I bet it was. Like, to come face-to-face with her like that must have been, you know, yeah. somehow validating, regardless of the fact that she didn't actually know who you were. To come face-to-face must have been unbelievable. Yes. Yes, and, and the fact she took my hand. She she took hold of my hand. Now, I don't know why or if she would do that with everyone. Well, that's really cool that the priest was able to facilitate that, too. I mean, basically, he brought you in as part of his circle of trust, and that allowed her to be comfortable with you, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Honor says it's been quite a journey, and along the way, she began drafting fictional stories with nuns, rape, and adoption themes. Her writing partner sensed that Honor needed to get her own story out of the way so they could write fiction together. So she wrote a book. I asked if it had been cathartic to write her own story. Yeah, yeah totally, totally. And what I've done, I hope, and I've been told that it, you know, for some it works, is I've gone into the psyche of the adoptee. Mm-hmm. Because I think so often we're the forgotten member. Um, we, You know, our needs and wants and all of that has to be squashed down, if you like. You know, if your mother says to you, I don't want to meet, I, I, and it's because of fear and she hadn't told her husband, and there's a lot of women in Ireland, for sure, in that situation. We're not allowed or shouldn't do anything about it. So we, we live, I lived as a secret for years. I kept it as a secret for years. I didn't talk about it to people here or, you know, apart from a couple of close friends and husbands. So it's all locked inside us. Now, that's not healthy. And the whole psychological impact of discovering or potentially discovering that you resulted from rape is huge. Now, how do you ever get your head around that? So you don't. You just don't get your head around that. You've just got to find a place to carry on living. But that is always going to be there. Wow. Um, I bet there's a lot of people that pull a lot from the tone and the sort of hidden or overt messages that you put in the book about adoption and adoption experiences. Well, I I hope so, because... That was the intention. You know, I Mm -hmm. wanted to educate people because so often you are met with this get over yourself is a favorite or um, something had to be done with the unwanted children 
and or adoption's a good thing, or I know someone who is very happy and they were adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, you get all of these responses. And it's these things people have to learn to, and, and you do learn to live. You get things into a, a place where, you know, you're okay with, with it. And even when I was going through the worst, the blackest moments, I kept trying to tell myself it's the boys that matter. It's my marriage that matters. Yeah. For goodness sake, why does it matter so much? But it matters. You know, you can't stop what's bubbling up inside you. Mm-hmm. It, it's there and needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, it'll bubble up in another way, which is detrimental in some way. Yeah. So you have to kind of deal with it as best you can, as best the circumstances will allow you. And there'll always be that sense of regret that it had to be like that. I mean, I'm, you know, not a gloomy person particularly, I don't think. (laughs) Right, but a realist, (laughs) it it sounds like. Yeah, but it it does knock you sideways. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, Honor, thank you so much for taking time to share your story. And it was really interesting to hear it, you know, thematically has some similarities to stories that I've heard here in the United States. Um, but I'm yeah. sorry for how traumatic it all was from start to finish. I mean, to have a family who, you know, adopted you, but didn't really embrace you to, you know, getting the false story that you had been a product of a rape and, and to learn, you know, in essence, through those facts that you've now that you now know that it probably wasn't true that must have been really tough but you sound like yeah. you're working through it through your writing and and I appreciate your work yes, to try to well, bring that, light to it yes well it helps I've got a trilogy there now so that's all kind of and, and I'm on to another book which is not connected to adoption in any way at all that's good i'm glad to hear that you're expanding your writing into other other things all right honor thank you so much for your time today all the best to you yeah well thank you i'm not sure because we've been on a while so yes so that's your time too so thank you for that yeah i'm listening (laughs) my pleasure take care then okay bye now bye Hey, it's me. I don't know about you, but it was tough to listen to Honor tell the story of her lonely childhood. Kids are supposed to be out playing, laughing, and exploring the world around them, but her adopted mother didn't create that environment. I thought it was really cool, though, that the parish priest took Honor to meet her mother, and they got a picture together. That's a moment that will last the rest of her days, even if Sarah didn't know who Honor really was. If you'd like to read some of Honor's work, You can find her as Honor Donahoe on Amazon.com, where her trilogy and other works of hers are sold. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Honor's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can choose to share your whole story, maintain some privacy about parts of your journey, or share completely anonymously. You can find the show at facebook.com slash whoamireally, or follow me on Twitter at whoamireally. 
And please, if you like the show, you can support me at patreon.com slash WAI really. You can subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, it would mean so much to me if you would take a moment to share a rating or leave a comment. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too.